my name is Rebecca Satterwhite, and you are listening to the Grok Science Show from WHPK 88.5 FM, Pride of the South Side. Grok's is a word that means to perceive something so profoundly well that you understand it on an intuitive level. The word was coined by Robert A. Heinlein in the 1961 science fiction novel, Stranger in a Strange Land. The Grok Science Show was founded in 2002 by members of the Biological Sciences Division here at the University of Chicago. Today, the show is still student-run and broadcasts out of the WHPK studios in a 100-year-old bell tower. It's the 18th of July, 2019, and this is my spooky 13th episode. Yay! All right, babes, you're listening to The Grok Science Show with me, Becca Satterwhite. And for this week's Getting to Know Me segment, I did another Twitter poll. And again, pop culture obsession won the poll. So I don't know if people who actually heard me talk about Mr. T's Twitter are voting for continued pop culture obsessions. But either way, that's what we have. So today we're going to hear some of my personal thoughts on America's television actress, Jennifer Love Hewitt. I am from Texas. And so is Jennifer Love Hewitt. Point number one, she makes a lot of bad TV, and I love bad TV. So that gives you some idea of why we're talking about J.Lo Hugh, primarily those two reasons. My obsession with J.Lo Hugh started back when she was the star of a little-known daytime TV drama called The Ghost Whisperer. Er, er. Listen, I love creepy things, but I'm not a believer in things for which there is no data, like ghosts. But I like to think I went into the Ghost Whisperer with an open heart. What did I get? Mostly hair extensions and copper eyeshadow. And really, really remarkably silly outfits that look like they came out of the anthropology dumpster. Like a full waistcoat with a damn pocket watch. Gauzy dresses with Victorian vibes and tons of cleavage. A family that somehow owns a massive family home in a tiny town on an income from owning an antique shop, which nobody can shop at because it's a tiny town, and being a fireman, which is what the partner did in the show. So the really great part about The Ghost Whisperer is not all of this stuff I've already told you, but it was Jennifer Love Hewitt's interpretation of a person who has this ability to talk to ghosts. On the show, she would generally be like waltzing happily around the small town wearing a bonkers nuts outfit with tons of hair, big as Texas, big as, wait, it's hair, the higher the hair, the closer to heaven. But I think hair big as Texas is also a saying. Anyway, so she would just look nuts. She just looks nuts. All the makeup, all the hair, crazy outfit, just walking around this town. And then she would run right into somebody who's being haunted by a ghost in the middle of the day. And like, there are a lot of ghosts in this tiny town. So she would just start talking to somebody and then flash the camera a knowing smile 
and tell the person. She'd be like, hi, my name is Melinda. Uh, you have a ghost directly behind you, but don't worry about it. I'm actually a ghost whisperer. It's no big deal. So her name was Melinda, which that gets its own bullet point, which come on. But yeah, just it's so nice to meet you. I'm so sorry about your dead father and your grandfather and you're being pursued. But but don't worry, I'm going to help you. It's a special interpretation. Not overly, I would say not overly wrought. Not overly thought out. Just kind of let's do what we can with the script. That was the Ghost Whisperer. She graduated from the Ghost Whisperer into doing this great nighttime soap opera where she played a sex worker in the very vaguest sense. The show was a lifetime show called The Client List, and it really wanted us to believe that a legal massage parlor specialized in elaborate costumes. The Client List was a fun show that should have been better. They even had Sybil Shepard on the cast playing her mom. But it's a lot to ask of Jennifer Love Hewitt to carry an entire show as the solo lead. She really can't do it. That's not to say I don't love her. I enjoy seeing her try, and I especially love seeing her in all of the crazy costumes that she gets to wear. I think that she is a national treasure. I want to point out that one problem with the client list as a native Houstonian is that they had her driving what would essentially be a four-hour commute every day. So that in itself drove me nuts. It wasn't a great show. It only had two seasons. Like I said, she couldn't carry it forever, but we did get to see her do a Texas show. I also remember years ago, she got some flack in the press for having cellulite like a real human woman. This was all based on photos of her that were taken in her bathing suit when she was on her honeymoon. And I really appreciated how she handled it. She was like, yeah, that's my fat. I'm a woman and I'm on my honeymoon and I don't care. And so I thought that seemed really cool. I guess I've been beguiled by her nice seeming personality into thinking that I should be friends with this woman. Um, I just want to finish this up by saying Jennifer Love Hewitt remains one of our most undervalued supporting actors. She's no Meryl Streep, but she is, like all women, more than just a pretty face. She really looks like she's having fun out there and enjoys performing. I mean, she did a full dance routine to bust a move for us in the last season of The Client List. So come on, the least we can do is keep her working. I also know that she has a current TV show, but I do not care. And this concludes today's Getting to Know Me segment. listening to the Grack Science Show with me, Becca Satterwhite, and it's time for What's Up with Wasps. The story today is that wasps are evolutionarily tight with their microbiota. Today's story comes to us via a brand new publication in M-Bio by authors Edward J. Van Opstel and Seth Bordenstein titled Phylosymbiosis Impacts Adaptive Traits in Nasonia Wasp. This story is about three things, family trees, microbes, and a fancy sounding theory called phylosymbiosis. Let's start with family trees. Family trees are a way that we estimate and visualize relatedness. Take my own family tree, for example, and pretend that the tree grows such that the oldest branches are on the top. At the top of my tree are my two sets of grandparents. On my dad's side, there was Alan and Willie Sue, 
or Mima and Papa, as I knew them. Yes, I did grow up farm adjacent. And then on my mom's side, we had Granddaddy Gibson and Erlene. The next branch on my tree, working down from my grandparents, would be their offspring. So that's my parents, my aunts and uncles. And then the third branch would be the offspring of my grandparents' offspring, a.k.a. myself and my siblings. So with that picture in mind, we can actually assign genetic values of relatedness to each branch of my family tree. That would be relatedness relative to me. If that sounds insane, bear with me. I find that this is one of the more fun ways to think about families. So I am 100% genetically identical to myself. If you compared my genes with my genes, there would be no difference. My siblings and I are approximately 50% genetically identical. Okay, so I have lots of different siblings, but on average, we're all about 50% genetically identical. The offspring of my siblings, so that's my nieces and nephews, are 25% genetically identical to me. And the same goes for my grandparents. We're 25% genetically identical. So you get the idea. Branch links are not actually arbitrary. In the sense of true family trees or phylogenies, branch length is proportional to the amount of genetic relatedness. We're going to be talking about the wasp family tree today, and I wanted to make sure you had your mini quantitative molecular genetics primer. The second important background concept to wasps up this week is the microbiome or microbiota. A microbiome is the community of microbes associated with, which means microbes that live in and on, an organism. For example, the human gut microbiome has gotten a lot of press in recent history. Perhaps you already know that your gut organs are never not teeming with a dynamic community of bacteria, fungi, and viruses. And as it turns out, so are the wasps in the story. The third and final background concept is the theory of phylosymbiosis. The theory predicts that we should be able to build a family tree of the wasp, which is the lineage of a single organism, and separately build a family tree of the wasp microbiota, which is the lineage of a whole community of organisms. And if we overlaid them, they would be the same tree. According to this theory, the wasps and their microbiota should change together in response to the environment. So remember, this is on an evolutionary timescale. Microbes have been evolving for billions of years before hosts came along. And then this subset that we're talking about today has been evolving as a community inside of this host, probably for as long as the host has been around. The theory of phylosymbiosis predicts that when the wasp diverges into two species, so does the microbiota diverge into two species-specific communities, one for each of the new wasp species. I want to note that microbiome studies are still a very new subset of a very new subset of biological specialties, so this is pretty cutting edge in terms of what humans can know about their environment. So the story is that this group used three closely related species of the parasitoid wasp genus Nasonia, commonly called the jewel wasp, and the species they used diverged from each other between 0.4 and 1 million years ago. So these species are Nasonia vitropinus, Nasonia geralti, and Nasonia longicornis. So it's an ancient family tree. It started from a single common Nasonia ancestor over a million years ago. The first branch to diverge from that ancestor, so there was a speciation event that led to the formation of Nasonia vitropinus. That was 600,000 years ago. And then there was a second split about 400,000 years ago that produced Nasonia geralti and longicornis. So that completes the jewel wasp family tree. We have three species that diverge from a common ancestor. To test the theory of phylosymbiosis, they needed to know whether the microbiota of the different wasp species was actually beneficial for those wasp species. 
So they used germ-free larvae of each different wasp species that had never been exposed to any microbes. So germ-free babies. They then took the gut microbiota out of adult wasps and heat treated it to kill the microbes and make the microbial matter inert. So they used this heat-treated microbiota as a treatment to which they exposed the germ-free larvae. So they would give the germ-free baby larvae access to lots of dead bacterial cells, all they could eat. And they did this microbe exposure to wasp larvae in a reciprocal manner, such that each larva from all three wasp species were exposed to their own and to each other's heat-treated microbiota. They then observed how the larvae developed under a microscope to check for beneficial or negative effects. What they found is that the alternate species microbiota, wasp larval growth slowed significantly. There were marked decreases in wasp pupation and adult survival, but adult wasp reproduction, including male fertility and longevity, were unaffected by early life exposure to the alternate microbiota. So the results demonstrate that early life exposure to heat inactivated microbiota from more distantly related species poses more severe developmental and survival costs than microbiota from closely related or the same species. Another way to think about this is that a host-specific microbiome has been evolving inside of these wasp species for millions and millions of years, and it turns out that the specificity is important. So you have to have the microbiome that you're meant to have to reap the maximum benefits in this wasp system. They found very good evidence for phylosymbiosis. They found that, indeed, when the wasps diverged, their microbiomes also diverged and were specific to the different species. And that's what's up with wasps this week. You're listening to the Grok Science Show from WHPK, and I have a few, I have a few public service announcements for you. Every day, children are sexually solicited online. Don't believe the hype. Visit CyberTipline.com for information on how to protect yourself from the threat of online predators. That's CyberTipline.com. Millions of kids are using their energy wisely by installing energy-saving light bulbs and turning things off when not in use. It only takes a second, so what's your excuse? Learn more at lostyourexcuse.gov, a message from the U.S. Department of Energy and the Ad Council. Babes, I've got a science story for you. This story comes to us from Ethology, the International Journal of Behavioral Biology, via a 2002 article titled Homosexual Mating Displays in Penguins by authors Pinsom, Dobson, and Juventin. That's J-O-U-V-E-N-T-I-N. Some background information. Same-sex courtship and mating behaviors are well-known in birds and especially prevalent in species that use communal lex, that's L-E-K-S, which is a mating display arena. Some birds get together in these lex and they perform their mating displays. We discussed lex extensively in a previous episode on pterosaur fossils. Same-sex courtship behaviors appear least common in monogamous species, but seabirds appear to represent an exception. Unusual sexual behaviors were recorded in the earliest studies of penguins. This is back in 1932. 
Several species were observed during the mating stage in captivity and in the field in displaying pairs and even trios composed of the same sex. So the old theory goes that there's a trial and error sex recognition. This was proposed by someone named Roberts in 1940. He thought that a typical penguin was unaware of sex differences and does not differentiate between males and females, even in mating. Basically, he thought that penguins can't tell the difference, so they just display for whoever. This sparked a lot of debate because people argued that it must be more complicated than that. But apparently, it's really hard for humans to visually distinguish penguin sexes in natural populations. So there really wasn't enough data to actually say anything about it. The paper today says this historical controversy over sex recognition may seem outdated, but the occurrences of homosexual pairs in penguins had seldom been confirmed. Furthermore, visual sexing of penguins is problematic, making it difficult to assess. So the point is, it was hard to know for a really long time, but there were these observations. This group in the study today studied mate choice in the king penguin. That's Aptenedites patagonicus. So we're just going to call it the king penguin. They caught unbonded and bonded displaying pairs of king penguins. They describe bonded versus unbonded. Unbonded means that the pair is together, but that they don't really know each other very well. When they're bonded, they've actually memorized each other's mating calls. So that's what bonded means in this case. In the study, they caught both bonded and unbonded pairs of king penguins that were doing mating displays for each other. Later, they were able to sex the birds using a DNA technique. They say we marked these birds with numbered temporary plastic flipper bands and subsequently observed their pairing fate. We used DNA sexing to quantify the occurrence and fates of homosexuality in displaying or bonded pairs compared to heterosexual pairs. Specifically, we tested Robert's 1940 hypothesis that pairing is random with, with respect to sex by statistically testing for a non-random pattern. We also asked whether homosexually displaying pairs were likely to form pair bonds, so whether they would stay together through the mating season. What they found is that of the 53 couples for which they did have the DNA sexing, 26% were male-male couples. Only 2% were female-female couples, which means that 72% were heterosexually displaying couples. The sample of displaying birds was 62% male. So most of the birds that were displaying at all were male. This frequency was used to predict the proportion of display pairings if each individual displayed with other displayers at random. They use this information to estimate whether they were displaying randomly with respect to sex or specifically. They found that the frequencies of unisexual couples were significantly less than expected at random for both males and females. So Roberts was wrong. Of 75 bonded pairs in 2008, there was one male couple and one female couple. So these were couples that stayed together through the mating season. So only two same-sex couples stayed together. So only two same-sex couples actually lasted through the season and bonded and actually learned each other's specific songs. So all four birds in the two pairs, so all the four birds in the same-sex pairs were subsequently found paired to a new partner and attending an egg in the spring. In conclusion, they said they tested whether displaying penguins paired non-randomly with respect to sex results countered to the trial and error sex recognition hypothesis. Male-male pairings occurred less often than if males were paired at random, and the same was true of female-female pairings. This evidence falsifies Robert's 1940s claim of pairing by trial and error. They note that inexperienced individuals may have trouble distinguishing males from females, so Males that displayed with other males took longer to find a female mate. These penguin males were also significantly smaller than heterosexually displaying males, perhaps reflecting younger age or incomplete growth to adult size. 
So the indication here is that baby penguins can't tell the difference between males and females. So they just display for whoever and eventually they figure it out. And same-sex coupling does happen in penguins. They will hang out and get to know each other, but eventually making an egg is so important. They say that they have observed thousands and thousands of penguins and never have they seen males without eggs. So making that egg seems to be really, really important. They will even uncouple after they've been together for one season and go find new mates. Penguins don't mate monogamously for life, so it's not unusual for them to find new partners, but I know I thought this was a really fun study. I had no idea this kind of stuff went on, and I certainly didn't know it was so prevalent. So that's our first story of the day. Babes, you're listening to the Grok Science Show. I have a story for you called The Microbes Inside Cottonwood Trees Produce Methane. This is a quick story that was originally covered on NPR on All Things Considered. The title for that is Getting Fire from a Tree Without Burning the Wood by author Joe Palka, based on research from the Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Tennessee. I learned about this story by watching a video of a scientist hold a small metal pipe stick it right into a tree and then hold up a flame to the end of the pipe and light a flame. Gas in the tree was leaking out through the pipe and combusting at the end. So it was just like this eternal flame, not truly eternal, but still it was just on fire because the tree was full of gas and it really blew my mind. Paraphrasing from Oak Ridge scientist Melissa Krecker and Christopher Schott, the wood in this particular species naturally has this condition called wet wood where methane is saturated within the trunk of the tree. This wet wood makes for a welcoming home for all sorts of microorganisms. No one has ever actually seen a lot of the microorganisms because we can't grow them, but we are able to identify them using their genetic sequences. Some of those organisms turned out to be species of archaea that are known methane producers. So those are single-celled organisms related to bacteria. So it's actually not the trees themselves that are making the methane. It's the microbes living inside the trees. Isn't that nuts? Methane is such a potent greenhouse gas. So Kreger says it's important to see how much of it the trees are actually producing. And it raises the surprising notion that trees could actually be contributing to global warming. However, the trees are removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And the methane that they are actually producing is very, very small relative to atmospherically important amounts. But still, the whole thing blew my mind. You should definitely look up the video. Fascinating.
All right. You're listening to the Grok Science Show with me, Becca Satterwhite. I have a third story for you today. It's about charismatic parrots. This story comes to us from a Nature News and Views article from 2002 titled Science, Sex, and the Kakapo by author W. Sutherland. It refers heavily to a theory paper titled Natural Selection of Parental Ability to Vary the Sex Ratio of Offspring by authors Trivers and Willard. That was published in Science in 1973. And a third citation is the actual discovery paper that came out in 2002 titled Effects of Supplementary Feeding on the Offspring Sex Ratio of Kakapo, colon, A Dilemma for the Conservation of a Polygonous Parrot by authors Cloud, Elliott, and Robertson that was published in the journal Biological Conservation. So this story has two things that I love, successful conservation biology efforts and the Kakapo, a fat, flightless parrot that evolved in New Zealand millions of years ago. Fun fact about me, I have an irrational fear of birds. Ever since I was a little girl, my axe-wielding Meemaw slaughtered a chicken in front of me, and I am terrified of birds at my core. But that's why I love this particular species so much, there is nothing to threaten you. The Kakapo, that's K-A-K-A-P-O. Scientific name, Strigops habratilis. The Kakapo adapted to life on the ancient fertile island of New Zealand, where there were only really birds and snakes and no mammalian predators to be found. There were so many lovely nuts and fruits on the ground that this bird eventually adapted by just getting really fat. So the Kakapo are one of the world's heaviest parrots. They weigh something like eight pounds each and they lost their ability to fly. It's unclear to me whether this was a side effect of just getting really fat, but I bet that the extra pounds didn't help. And third, they lost any decent fight or flight response to predation because they had to evolve in the absence of predation for thousands and thousands of years. Apparently, the kakapo will just freeze when you approach them or a predator approaches them, which makes them really easy targets. And when rats and kitty cats were introduced to New Zealand, bad things happened for the species. The kakapo distribution once included all of the three largest islands of New Zealand. This shrank drastically following the spread of black rats and stoats introduced from Europe in the 1870s. By the 1950s, the Kakapo were extinct on North Island and only 18 birds remained in a remote and mountainous part of South Island. The stoats are thought to have eaten not only eggs and chicks, but also incubating females. So all 18 survivors were male. The only remaining wild females were on Stewart Island, south of South Island. So we're all getting a great New Zealand lesson. Rats and feral cats were present on Stewart Island. A bold decision made in 1982 was to capture all of the remaining birds and release them on predator-free islands, including Codfish Island off the coast of Stewart Island. I want to add a reality check here that when they say predator-free islands, they are glossing over the wide-scale slaughter of the predators that had to occur to make that environment Kakapo-friendly. Anyway, it was a drastic and expensive move, and it worked! A world population of 62 birds in 2001, with only 21 adult females, created an urgent need for more females, yet only six female fledglings had been produced since 1982. So only six brand new girl babies since 1982. That's where the study comes in. From M. Clout, C-L-O-U-T, at the University of Auckland. Providing extra food to improve fledgling success seems to have inadvertently resulted in breeding females, producing an excess of male young, as predicted by evolutionary theory. Given this finding, conservation workers decided to withhold extra food until after the females had laid their eggs, resulting in a much-needed boost in the number of female fledglings this year. When the parents were eating a little bit less, they produced more females. When the parents are really well-fed, they produce more males. 
Let's see. The theory of sex allocation by Trivers and Willard states that females in better physical condition should produce more offspring of the sex that shows the greater benefit from this improved condition. So Kakapos reproduce in Lex, which we talked about, communal display grounds where males fight to defend small territories within which they display really vigorously. Females visit just to select their mates before raising the young alone elsewhere. Studies of various lek breeding species show strong competition between males, with a few high-quality individuals obtaining almost all of the matings. Larger kakapo males are more likely to mate. Males also grow faster and are larger than females, so they're probably more costly to raise for the mother. If Trivers and Willard's hypothesis applies, then mothers in good condition should produce more sons. Females provided with supplementary food did indeed produce significantly more sons. An average of 67% males against 30% of all birds not given supplementary food. So that's more than double the effect. That's huge. They were able to extend this finding to another population as well. A profuse fruiting of podocarp trees was expected to trigger kakapo breeding on Codfish Island this year. This is in 2002. So the New Zealand Department of Conservation concentrated all remaining 21 adult females there. Supplementary feeding was delayed until after egg production to avoid boosting female condition too much before laying to avoid a male bias in offspring. Extra food was still provided after laying to maximize fledgling success. And this is because well-fed females will spend more time sitting on the nest. And again, the strategy worked. 15 of the 24 young fledged this year were female. This is a neat example of how behavioral ecology can benefit conservation, although the mechanism by which females manipulate the sex ratio remains a mystery. So let's all go to New Zealand and see these awesome parrots. listening to the Grok Science Show with me, Becca Satterwhite. And I have a fourth story for you today. People made tiny ant robots. This is a short story to highlight some clever human innovation inspired by the natural world. This info comes to us via a Science Daily article titled Robot Ants That Can Jump, Communicate With Each Other, and Work Together from L'Ecole Polytechnique Federale de Luzon with the original discovery paper published in Nature 2019 by authors Zakipov, Mori, Hasada, and Pike, P-A-I-K, titled Designing Minimal and Scalable Insect-Inspired Multi-Locomotion Milli-Robots. That is a lot of syllables. What they did was they made these three-legged T-shaped origami robots that they call tribots. They're very small and cute. I thought the name Tribots was a little on the nose, but I can't build a robot or fold origami, so what do I know? To quote from the authors, the robot movements are modeled on those of Odontomachus ants. These ants normally crawl, but to escape a predator, they snap their powerful jaws together to jump from leaf to leaf. 
The tribots replicate this catapult mechanism that the ants naturally have through an elegant origami design that combines multiple shape memory alloy actuators, whatever those are. As a result, a single robot can produce five distinct locomotion gates, which means the way that it walks. So it can vertically jump, horizontally jump, somersault to clear obstacles. It can also walk on textured terrain and crawl on flat surfaces, just like the creatively resilient ants they were modeled for. Despite having the same anatomy, each robot is assigned a specific role depending on the situation. So think about the ant social structures that you know of. Explorer robots detect physical obstacles in their path, such as objects, valleys, or mountains. After detecting an obstacle, they inform the rest of the group. Then the leader robot gives the instructions. There are also worker robots who, meanwhile, pull their strength to move the objects. Collectively, they can quickly detect and overcome obstacles and move objects much larger and heavier than themselves. These ant robots can be manufactured and deployed in large numbers, so they could potentially locate a target quickly over a large surface without relying on GPS or visual feedback. And with their unique collective intelligence, tiny robots can demonstrate better adaptability to unknown environments. Therefore, for certain missions, they would outperform larger, more powerful robots, or so the authors say. I love a story of innovation that springs from a biological design. There are some cases where you just can't beat the infinite trial and error that evolutionary history allows. to the Grok Science Show, and I have a final story for you today. If you are a friend of mine, I will semi-often hit you up for topics to research for this show, and I accidentally found this interesting bit of information while looking for something on gemology. Thank you, Natasha, and stay tuned for a real story on gemology to come. So this information comes to us from a paper titled Historical Variation in the Mineral Composition of Edible Horticultural Products by authors White and Broadley, published in the Journal of Horticultural Science and Biotechnology in 2005, and the study was funded by the UK Department for Environment, Food, and Rural Affairs. So apparently there is good evidence that the average dry matter content and mineral comp composition of fresh fruits and vegetables has changed and actually decreased quite a lot since the 1930s in both the US and the UK. People have known about this since the 1960s, but I learned about this today for the first time and I wanted to share. They did a big modern comparative study to test whether mineral contents in fresh produce have really declined over time. Data were obtained from the original notebooks of researchers from 1929 to 1944, and then again from 2002. So they expressed mineral concentration data as dry weight, which is a way to remove previous biases due to variation in tissue hydration methods. 
They also test the same hypothesis with data from the U.S. So sorry, this is a U.K. group. They do a whole long-term study in the U.K. They repeat the same analysis with data from the United States to see if the patterns are the same. And they note that the U.S. and the U.K. have historical, horticultural, and consumer practices that are in parallel. So they would expect to see the same trends. They evaluated concentrations of calcium, copper, iron, potassium, magnesium, and phosphorus. I know that's a lot of words that probably don't mean a ton to you, but these are really important in our environment. And the proportions of them in particular to the foods that we eat in the soil composition are really, really important. So after looking at the long-term patterns and the amount of these elements, they found that the average concentrations of many of these minerals in fresh produce has decreased since the 1930s in both the U.S. and the U.K. Specifically, copper, magnesium, and sodium in vegetables and copper, iron, and potassium in fruit have decreased significantly between the 1930s and 1980. They additionally found no significant difference in mineral concentrations in nuts in the USA. So the nuts are not changing, but the fruits and vegetables are. And since mineral composition dropped in both countries, they say this may be linked to modern agricultural practices that are shared by both countries. I mean, I don't really know what to make of it, but it was news to me. rate, review, and subscribe to the Grok Science Show on Apple Podcasts. Note that we are the UChicago branch of a larger Grok's network. Our show is the one with the yellow Petri dish. All episodes are available on the Internet Archive. Just search for Grok's WHPK or visit tinyurl.com slash Grok's. That's G-R-O-K-S-W-H-P-K. Email me your science stories or your events for promotion to satterwhite at uchicago.edu. That's S-A-T-T-E-R-W-H-I-T-E. I know it is long. And check out our next show in two weeks. Thank you and goodbye.
Señor, al suelo mío. 